verses 46 of the Heidelberg Catechism, where we confess the following, why has Christ commanded us to address God as our Father? To awaken in us at the very beginning of our prayer that childlike reverence and trust toward God, which should be basic to our prayer. God has become our Father through Christ. And will much less deny us what we ask of Him in faith than our fathers would refuse us earthly things. Why is there added in heaven? These words teach us not to think of God's heavenly majesty in an earthly manner, and to expect from His almighty power all things that we need for body and soul. Because how can we have an intimate 
relationship with the Father in heaven without respect and trust. The relationship is intimate because of the bond of love that we have with God, but it's also full of reverence because our Father in heaven is not our equal, is he? We are not equal to him. And if God commands us to honor earthly parents, then how much more ought we not to honor our heavenly Father? So what does that mean for us? What does it mean that God is our Father? Where does that image come from in the first place? Well, the Bible presents the concept of God's fatherhood in several ways. Fatherhood is tied to headship. A father both generates and is head over a family. And the first glimpse of the fatherhood of God is found in the first couple chapters of Genesis. Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, you could say one of the themes that runs through those chapters is about God generating and establishing the family of mankind. Like the plants and the animals and other things were created after their own kind, but God created man in his own image. In chapter 2, as we heard this morning, describes that in greater detail. Adam was created first, and God established him in the Garden of Eden. God, being the Father, established a covenant with Adam, a covenant in which life is promised to Adam. And then God intended that the rest of the human race would be sent from that first man. For Adam became a father because he was an image bearer of the fatherhood of God. And so he became the head of this family, the head of the human race. And together with his wife that God gave him, he was to nurture and care for and lead and protect all who came from him. And so in this manner, God shows his fatherhood to us in a very direct way. By creating Adam in his image, making him the father of all mankind, God was showing him and us that Adam is his son, and he is the father of Adam. And as the son of God, Adam must image God to the rest of the world. As the head of the human family, Adam was to image the fatherhood of God to his family. And how was he to do this? Well, he had to know God, to understand who God is, understand his relationship with God, and be able to teach his children about that. He had to understand the meaning of fatherhood by contemplating and meditating on God's fatherhood, and then he had to reflect that in his own life. So Adam's charge, God charged him to be the father of the entire human race, and he was to generate his own kind. And he was given a wife to assist him in this. He had to, together they had to fulfill the mandate. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. For they were together, Adam and his wife and his family, they were to have dominion over God's creation. And so we see then that God gave Adam the task of imaging his fatherhood. God wished to reflect his fatherhood to the world through Adam. And one of the ways God did this was by giving Adam a name and then also giving Adam the authority to give names. Adam was to reflect the fatherhood of God. He gave names to all the animals, but also to his one. So in order, the order of beings created in God's image then was to be a constant witness 
to the world of the fatherhood of God. So in the beginning, there was an intimate and close bond between God and Adam. It was not a relationship that had to be, maybe I could use the word, artificially put in place by God's covenant with Abraham or with the Israelites, but the relationship that God and Adam had was based on Adam receiving the image of his father. Because this son carried the father's image, he had a perfectly harmonious relationship with his heavenly creator father, a relationship of childlike reverence and trust, a relationship of love. And the fact that God was Adam's father who created him, that explains how the relationship began. And the fact that God is the heavenly father who created him also explains why there was boundaries on that relationship. God placed commands, demands on Adam, and put boundaries in place. Human relationships between fathers and children have boundaries too. And in spite of this perfect relationship that God had with Adam, he put boundaries in place. You must not eat from that one tree. That was one of the boundaries. And that boundary congregation is evidence that the Father in heaven and the Son on earth are not equals. Adam had to respect that boundary. He had to trust in a childlike way that his heavenly father had put that boundary in place for his good. And as long as he maintained that boundary, he continued to show childlike reverence and trust. But then sin entered the world. And Adam forfeited his role to bear the image of God's father. You see, while he only ate, ate only the food that the father provided, he showed that he was remaining in the covenant that God had made with him. He was a faithful son, as long as he was being fed in every aspect by the word of God. And to eat the food that his heavenly father provided showed that he remained in that relationship. But then he refused to be fed by that food any longer, and instead he chose food from the hand of Satan. They chose, Adam and Eve chose to believe the doctrine of Satan instead of the doctrine of God. And so they partook of unholy communion by eating from forbidden food. And so they demonstrated allegiance to their new father, the devil, by partaking from food that he offered them. And that's why things changed. Adam became a rebellious son. And that childlike reverence and trust was gone, was destroyed. And he no longer imaged the fatherhood of God. He had thrown his sonship away. Congregation, the staggering reality is that God did not change. The Father did not change. He did not cast his fatherhood aside. He remains a father and does not change. And he immediately demonstrated his unchanging love and justice by coming into the Garden of Eden and seeking out his son. Adam, where are you? And he didn't stop there, congregation. He did not stop there. He continued to act as a gracious father. He even continued to choose children for himself from the descendants of his son. And he raised up more children for himself, the children of Israel, 
For example, who in Exodus 22 he calls my firstborn son. And in Deuteronomy 32, Moses says to the Israelites, Is he not your father, your creator, who made you and formed you? So God continued to choose children for himself. Since his children were now sinful people, the love and respect that they owed, owed their father in heaven, that didn't spring up spontaneously in their hearts. So God had to teach his children. He had to discipline his children. He had to train them. And the Bible, the Old Testament shows us very clearly how God did that in a very loving manner. As God, the Father, guided his children through the wilderness, for example, he gave them his law, and he made a covenant with them. And as they grew and matured, he, he taught them, and he disciplined them. At times he also punished them, but he loved them, and he forgave them every time they repented prophet Isaiah recounts the fatherly kindnesses of the Lord. He writes, in all their distress, he too was distressed. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and lifted them up and carried them. Or we can go to the prophecy of, of Hosea. He gives a moving description of how God deals with his people. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. I led them with cords of human kindness and with ties of love. I lifted the yoke from your neck and bent down to feed them. What a powerful and moving description of the love of God. The father who feels the pain of his children, who feels their distress, who takes them in his arms and carries them. And brothers and sisters, this is our God. Our God, too. This is the Father in whom we may place our trust and confidence. He created his first child in his own image and breathed into him the breath of life. And he brought forth his children from Egypt as a nation. And he cared for them when they were distressed. He carried them in his arms when they stumbled. He taught them how to walk and he led them to the promised land. And gave them a rich inheritance. And he had so much patience with them. He demonstrated the patience again and again and again. And it is our privilege to call this God, our Father in heaven, to call him God. And this Father desires a close relationship with his children, an intimate relationship. And yet, just like the people of God that we read about in the Bible, we so often disappoint our Father, don't we? In those same passages from Isaiah and Hosea, we also hear the Father's complaint. They grieved His Holy Spirit. And the Lord laments, the, the more I called to them, the further they went from me. Or listen to how the Lord complains to His people in Malachi chapter 1. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty. He grieves the father immensely when his children fail to love him and give him the honor and the reverence that is his brother. And it grieves the father immensely when, when this 
His image does not shine as brightly in us as it ought to be. And it grieves the Father when we don't trust His revealed word. When we would rather eat unholy food or ignore His commandments. Or when we cross the boundaries that He has set in place for the good of our relationship with Him. So often we tend to put God in boundaries of our own design, don't we? We think that He fits the mold of our thinking. The Apostle Paul summarized that so very well when he, when he preached in Athens. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not give in temples made by human hands, nor is He served by human hands as if He needed anything. Because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. But God is, is not a father to be taken casually. That's often how we think. We think that God will let us get away with stuff. We often think of him only as a savior and not as a judge, but he is both. He is merciful and just. He is both. Judge and Savior, and he has revealed this most holy in Jesus Christ. And the staggering truth is that the fatherhood of God is much greater and more powerful than all of our rebellion and sin combined. He retained his fatherly love. And he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but could become a son or daughter of God by faith. But he also retained his fatherly justice by condemning his dearly beloved son so that we could be adopted as sons and daughters of God. That's the kind of father we have. A father who gives of himself, who makes sacrifices. A father to reverence and respect, a father to love and to trust, humbly and simply like children. It is a love and respect grounded in the love of our Father that He has shown to us in His Son, Jesus Christ. Because it's only through the perfect obedience of His Son, Jesus Christ, that you and I can call God our Heavenly Father. That's a mighty reality in congregation. A mighty reality in Christ. We confess God has become our Father through Christ. Without Christ... God cannot be our Father. Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And just as Adam was God's spiritual son, so we too have a spiritual relationship with God through the work of Jesus Christ. And that connection, congregation, is wonderfully portrayed in the genealogy of Jesus Christ as Luke has it in Luke chapter 3. There Luke begins the list of names with Jesus, and he, he works backwards through the generations until in Luke chapter 3, verse 38, we, we come to these names, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Here, Adam is purposely named the son of God. Isn't that remarkable? Because in, in the beginning, Adam threw his sonship away in the Garden of Eden. Congregation, just as we witness the unchanging love and mercy of the Father throughout the history of God's people in the Old Testament, we see it here in the New Testament too. 
Because in fact, this is where the love of the Father shines even more brightly. Because when Jesus came to earth, he revealed to us the Father as no one else had ever revealed, revealed it before. Jesus showed us how far the Father was willing to go in order to save his children from the curse of sin. Did you ever realize, congregation, that whenever Jesus prayed, as recorded in the Gospels, he always addressed God as our Father, but not on the cross. On the cross, he was so far separated from his Father that he could only cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, the Father's love is so great, he was willing to, to give up that Son, that, that Son, for us. And no one can fathom the depths of God's perfect love for His Son when that Son suffered and died. And yet He did it for you and for me. He forsook His only Son, His beloved Son, that we might never more be forsaken by Him and congregation. That is how Adam's name got on that list in Luke chapter 3 and he is called the Son of God. Because in Jesus Christ, the Father renewed in Adam the breath of life which he first breathed into him at paradise. And that is how we too may be called children of God, sons and daughters of God. For we have dwelling in us the same life in the Spirit of Christ. And so anyone who wishes to have God as Father must have faith in Jesus Christ. Because trusting in the Father means trusting in Jesus Christ. If you have no faith in Christ, you will receive no blessing from the fatherhood of God. And God will become our enemy instead of our father. We read about that in Isaiah 63 as well. When Israel rebelled and grieved the Holy Spirit, then God turned from them and became their enemy. And he even fought against them, Isaiah writes. So again, we may never take our Father in heaven for granted. We never take his love for granted. Because by nature we are children of wrath and not children of God. And we may not make the conclusion either that, that just because we belong to God's people, that we're members of the covenant, that we've been baptized, that we are automatically going to be children of God. Because our Heavenly Father does not put up with rebellion. He does not put up with children who don't want to obey Him. Because then He would not be Father. He would not be true to his own fatherhood. He would not be honest about the boundaries that he has established. And then we could never trust him either. He is holy and he demands respect and reverence and trust in faith. And so, congregation, we have no excuse to forego the blessings offered by our Father in heaven because faith and obedience go hand in hand. And the blessing of the Father goes hand in hand with obedience. If we want to call God our Father in heaven, then we also have to act like our children. Children who trust and obey their Father. Already in the Old Testament, the Lord called His children to faith and obedience. He called His children to believe and trust His promises. And in the New Testament congregation, that call is even stronger because we've seen those promises fulfilled in Christ. Listen to what Isaiah says about him. 
very familiar words, he will be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore. What is Isaiah saying here? He's saying that the Messiah will order and establish a government. He will be the head of his people and the head of the kingdom. The Messiah who comes as counselor is the one who also provides wisdom and spiritual food. So all the attributes of the fatherhood of God are present in him, in the Messiah, in Christ. He establishes, he feeds, he maintains a family. He is the head of that family, the new covenant. He is the second Adam and the head of the new creation. And Christ is shown in the Gospels then as establishing his people by instituting the church. If you read about that in the Gospels and in Acts and in the letters of Paul and Peter, he is shown as feeding his people physical but also spiritual food. And the Lord teaches them. He teaches them the word of God. He feeds them with loaves and fish, but he also gives them the Lord's Supper. He is the bread of life. And Christ promises to be with his church, to be with the family of God, which he establishes, and which he promises to feed, which he does feed and protects to the end of the age, because he will maintain his family. He is sovereign and powerful and almighty. And so scripture shows that Christ, as the Son of God, mediates and images the fatherhood of God. Christ images the fatherhood of God perfectly. So, that, so perfectly that he can claim even that anyone who has seen the Father, or anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. But he is truly the ultimate image of the living God because he is the perfect picture of the Father in heaven. And so by knowing Christ, we know our Father in heaven. The congregation then, brothers and sisters, when we see what God has done for us in Christ, does that not invoke in us childlike reverence and trust? And this is what the Father wants from us. He wants us to be his humble children. He wants us to trust him, to believe in him. He wants, and ultimate, ultimately, he also wants to provide for us and care for us as our Father. And he is willing to do it for the sake of Christ and able to do it because he is almighty God. And he has shown that to us in Christ. He has given us evidence of his fatherly love in Christ. And so we can also confidently expect that he will give us everything that we need. But that also might raise some questions. Because it can be difficult for us to accept that our Heavenly Father has our good in mind all the time. What we need to keep in mind in congregation is that the fatherhood of God is not to be measured by earthly standards, but by divine and heavenly standards. 
keep in mind that the same father who went looking for Adam in the Garden of Eden after the fall into sin, same God who led his people through the wilderness to the promised land of Canaan, that same God is leading us to our eternal home. And the fact that you are sitting here listening to the proclamation of the Word of God is evidence that he is doing the same for you. That's what we need to keep in mind. Your Father in Heaven is looking out for your eternal future. And you can trust Him to get you there. Jesus proved that to us by showing us the love of the Father in a way that no one else has ever done. That's the ultimate reality of what we confess when we confess that we expect from God's Father and everything that we need for body and soul. After all, He is our Father our Father in Heaven, our Almighty Father in Heaven. And He is our God, He is our Savior, and He is our Father. So let us trust Him in the child's life, and Amen.